We're looking this evening at chapter 3 of Habakkuk, concluding our series in this prophet. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you mouched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. Who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses. The surging of mighty waters. I hear... And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread upon high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Thus far the reading 
of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we ask that You would use Your Word to teach us, to encourage us, and to equip us. Remind us, O oh Lord, of our duty before You. Remind us of Your provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. It is a temptation when we see someone who is successful or who has it together to think that what they do is easy for them. Isn't this true? You know, I think of mundane examples within, for example, the world of sports. We think that a few years ago, when Michael Jordan was at the height of his basketball career, that he simply went out and did what he did and was successful. We don't realize that he spent hour upon hour upon hour shooting shot after shot after shot. And the reason that he was successful was because he took it so seriously and was so engaged and practiced at what he did. I think sometimes we look at the Christian life and we see people who walk with the Lord, who seem confident, who have hope and trust in the Lord, that it just simply comes easily to them. That they're not like us. That they are simply ones that the Lord is close to and smooths out all of their problems. And nowhere, I think, is this more dangerous for us than in looking at what I call Bible people. Of course David is able to follow the Lord. He's special. The same with Peter, or Paul, or Moses, or Isaiah. Well, this morning we see in the prophet Habakkuk the veil lifted. And we see that in Bible people, they are just like us. They need to be committed to the Lord. They need to be committed to prayer. And this is what brings them close to God. We see this evening what it means to be committed to praying to the Lord. And so we will see first the spur to prayer that Habakkuk experiences. What drives Habakkuk to prayer? You all know what a spur is, don't you? It's that pointy object that a cowboy puts on his boot in order to get the horse moving. It's something that drives on to action. Secondly, we will see the attitude of prayer that Habakkuk has. Thirdly, we will see the hope of prayer that comes to Habakkuk. And finally, we will see the action of prayer that Habakkuk undertakes. A spur, an attitude, hope, and action. Let's begin then by looking at the beginning of chapter 3. This is a very interesting first verse. It seems in some sense completely out of place. Look at it. It says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Now, we don't expect to hear a prayer in a prophecy, do we? We expect the prophet to be confident, to be declaring the will of the Lord to us. 
We don't expect the prophet to be on his knees seeking the Lord for confidence and trust. But that's exactly what Habakkuk illustrates for us. We might ask ourselves, why does the prophet need to pray? Well, the answer is, is that throughout all of this book, Habakkuk has reminded us that he lives in a world that is in turmoil. That he has no security in himself or in his nation. And so he has to turn to the only place where there is security, and that is the Lord God himself. That makes this book, and especially this passage, extremely timely for us. Because if it's one thing that the world seems like right now, it seems like it's spinning out of control, doesn't it? So many things are changing so quickly. There is no place where we can find firm footing. And what Habakkuk is telling us is that no matter what our circumstances, no matter how dire our lives are, that we must seek the Lord to find firm footing. And that spur to prayer first comes in Habakkuk's knowledge of the goodness of God. Now this in and of itself seems odd because the first part of this book is describing how God is going to bring judgment upon Judah. How he is bringing the Chaldeans to execute judgment. Things are going to go from bad to worse. From the frying pan to the fire. You recall God saying to Habakkuk, if you think things are bad yet, you haven't even seen the Chaldeans. They're worse than anything you can imagine. So how can we say that Habakkuk sees and knows the goodness of God? The only way we can understand that is not by confusing our circumstances with the God of circumstances. You see, Habakkuk knows the goodness of God because he understands that God is one who upholds his holiness. That in the midst of all this trial and difficulty, it is because God is standing firmly on his character and his holiness that these things are happening. That this Lord is the one who justifies his people by faith. That it is not dependent upon our changing circumstances, but upon our trust in the Lord. Habakkuk not only knows the goodness of God, he knows the sovereignty of God. For this book also speaks of the Lord our God as the one who moves nations, who changes the destiny of kings and of peoples. He is the one who sees all things. This God of Habakkuk is the same God today. He does not change. He is still the mover of nations. He is still the one who sees all things, who hears all things, who knows all things. And this should spur us to prayer. Our circumstances bring difficulties into our lives, don't they? Illnesses we don't want. Trials we are not ready for. Hard providences that we wish would go away. But in those trials, we must enter in with Habakkuk and use them not as an opportunity to be depressed or discouraged, but rather to spur us on to prayer. They are 
triggers, if you would, spurs in our backs to drive us to the living God. We're the only place where we can find hope and meaning. And what Habakkuk does here is he illustrates a proper attitude that we should have in prayer. We see it in three things. First, in humility. Second, in adoration. And third, in petition. Look with me at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk begins with an attitude of humility. This is a change that has come in him from the beginning of the book. You recall at the beginning of the book, he was complaining against God. Saying, why are you doing these things? God, did you miss the memo? We're the good guys. Why are you doing this? Why don't you fix things according to what I think is right? And in the midst of that trial, now Habakkuk has come to a place where he recognizes that what is right is defined by God, not him. That God knows what is right, and he does what is right. Habakkuk has come to the place where he understands his own ignorance about himself and about his circumstances. This is critically important for us, isn't it? We all have had opportunity to look back in the past and to say to ourselves, at the time I didn't know why I met that person, but now I do. At the time I didn't know why we had difficulty selling our house. I didn't know why we had difficulty finding a job. I didn't know why we had these challenges. But now I see what the Lord has brought out of it. You see, in that way, hindsight is a benefit to us. But as believers in the living God, we place our trust in God and that allows us, even in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those circumstances, to trust the one who will get us through those circumstances. We need to recognize that our troubles actually come from focusing on our problems and on ourselves rather than God. Because if we are focused on God, we are focused on the one who will deliver us, who is in charge of us, who is sovereign over all things. And that puts everything into perspective. We see this even in small children, don't we? Do you think small children are worried about mortgage payments? No. Why? Dad takes care of that. I don't know how, but we've got a house. Do you think they're worried about whether they should go to the doctor or what the doctor will prescribe? No. Other people take care of that. They tell me what to do. That kind of childlike trust is something we must cultivate in our own lives. Babies don't worry themselves about where their next meal will come from. They just know it will happen. And there's a lot that goes into feeding children, isn't there? But you see, we must leave those troubles with God. And this shows us not only what we do not know, but it shows us our dependence upon God. 
At the beginning of this book, Habakkuk only saw his own perspective. He looked out over the world and he saw it within his own perspective and all he could think was that everything was horrible and failing. And what God was able to show him was that he was in charge, that he would take care of him. You see, when we see the world from God's perspective, we see his holiness at work. It shows us our own lack of worth. It shows us that we do not deserve the things that we think we deserve. It shows us that God does not grade on a curve. It allows us to see things absolutely. And that humbles us. It brings our pride low. That allows us to seek the Lord. The second attitude that we should have in prayer is one of adoration. We see this as Habakkuk says, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now, this type of fear is an awe. It is an awe that is based upon truth. Habakkuk has seen the work of God, and he is in awe of it. It is majestic beyond anything he can imagine. It is unfathomable to use a biblical word. And so this is true for you and for me as well. We have seen what God has done ultimately in the work of Jesus Christ. And this reminds us that God is at work and that He knows what He is doing. He will take care of us. We also see that God is a consuming fire. There is a great mercy in God in just simply not consuming us. The third attitude of prayer is not only humility and adoration, but also petition. Habakkuk has a change, not just of heart, but of speech here in chapter 3. He prays to the Lord in wrath, remember mercy, revive your work in the midst of the years. Habakkuk has stopped doing one thing and started another. You may notice in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, Habakkuk is trying to discuss with God what he should do. He's trying to have a conversation. He's trying to negotiate with God what he should do. Now, he's not a very successful negotiator. But isn't this often where we find ourselves? Lord, if you'll just do this for us, we'll do that for you. If you just deliver us here, we promise to do that. Habakkuk has ceased discussing, and in an attitude of prayer, he begins asking now. He knows he has no further cause to plead. He knows that he has no worth to place before the living God. And now he leads God's people to accept God's decree and His mercy. His focus is now upon God and His glory rather than His own negotiating position. This is the attitude that we must have in prayer. We begin first and foremost focusing on the Lord. And from there all things begin to make sense. And then that leads us to hope. 
in the midst of our prayers. This is why we need prayer so badly. Because so much of life seems hopeless. And the way we find hope is by taking our hopeless situation to the living God. You notice something else here that Habakkuk has stopped asking for himself. He stopped asking for his own perspective. And now what he desires is to be a part of God's plan. He wants to be a part of God's work. He wants God to revive his work. Do you see that? He's not asking for a particular need that Habakkuk has. He's saying, Lord, revive your work and let me see it and let me be a part of it. And he knows that God will revive his work. That God will make his work alive again. Now we are tempted to always want a reduplication of God's work. Don't we? We want to see God do the same thing over and over again. It was a temptation the Israelites faced. They wanted more of the parting of the Red Sea. They wanted more of the destruction of the Syrian army. They wanted more of what God had already done duplicated. Because that would make them be comfortable. But in reality, God is always doing something new. He is always taking us to a place that stretches our faith. Where we are not sure of what the ending is. You know, there's nothing like the experience of reading a book or watching a film the first time. We may enjoy it the second time or the third time, but we're not worried about what will happen to the hero. We're not concerned how the story will end because we already know the ending. But when we don't, we have to place faith and trust in what will happen. We're not certain how it will end, although we have a general idea, a promise of Hollywood that in the end, the good guys will win. But we don't know what the cost will be or how it will come about. And the same is true for our lives. As we go through, we are challenged with various circumstances that are never quite the same. And what we need to do is trust the Lord that in His wisdom, He will do a work, a new work. It's interesting that Habakkuk asks the Lord to revive His work in the midst of the years. Now, what does this mean? I think it has an immediate and a more global application. The immediate application is Habakkuk is saying in the midst of these years, in the years and the intervals between Judah and exile in Babylon, revive your work, Lord. Let us see it now. But I think there's also an application for you and for me right now as well. That there is indeed an interval. There is a midst of the years that we are living in right now. Between the first advent and the second. We know that our Lord Jesus Christ has come. He has promised that he will return. But we are now here in the middle years. In that waiting period of time. And we long for the Lord to revive his work now in our midst. That we might see his glory. That we might see his kingdom expand. And his name glorified. Is that your prayer this day? Are you 
praying actively that the Lord would revive His work in your life and in our nation and in this world now? Or are you simply trying to grit your teeth and make it through the day? Thinking that God has nothing left to show us. There's no more glory to be seen. We simply have to wait until Jesus returns. But you see, God will make His work known in the midst of these years. He will open blind eyes. And His work that remains unseen will be seen by others. And Habakkuk actually knows this from experience. That's exactly what he experienced in chapter 1. He was so sure he knew what was going on until God had opened his eyes. And then he realized that he was not nearly as smart as he thought he was. That he was not as prepared as he thought he was. This is the work of the kingdom, isn't it? Paul wrote that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is opening up eyes each and every day around us. We need to be ready to see His work. So if we have the right attitude in our prayers if we're seeking God's face, if we find hope in prayer, then what should we do? What is our action in prayer? Now that almost sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? To say we act in prayer. Shouldn't prayer just simply be speaking to God and waiting? I don't think so. Because I think there is an activeness, a hands-onness to our praying, to seeking the Lord, and seeking His glory. And Habakkuk reminds us that, that we are three, there are three things we ought to do in our prayers. First, we are to see. Second, we are to wait. And third, we are to rejoice. In Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning at verse 3, Habakkuk goes down through a list of all of the things that are a reminder of the work of God, of His deliverance, of His steadfastness, of His faithfulness. Do you see this? God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and His earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from His hand. Now, where is this? Well, if we look ahead of time we will see that Taman is a place in Edom. And Mount Paran is a place near Mount Sinai. And so what Habakkuk is saying here is that we've seen God on the march. And it began for us, obviously, at Mount Sinai. When God shone forth His power, when He led out His people, when He did the impossible and freed Israel from the hands of Pharaoh. His power was so great, you will remember, that he had to veil it. Do you remember Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And do you remember what God said? 
You can't handle my glory. But I'll put you in the rock, and you can see my back as I go by. The power and glory of the Lord is so powerful that we cannot even perceive it. Habakkuk is seeing and reminding himself of this in the midst of his prayers. And then he goes on through and he talks about the deliverance that Israel had seen. How plagues and pestilence went in the wake of God as he marched. And we remember this from, of course, the ten plagues upon Egypt. With flies and frogs and blood and locusts and hail and darkness. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Nations that thought that they were in control. God shakes them and his will is done. In verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. This recalls when Othniel the judge defeated Israel's enemies. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. This reminds us of Gideon delivering the Israelites. So what Habakkuk is doing is he is seeing and remembering all of the times that God has delivered. This is important for us in our prayers. Do you rehearse all of the deliverances that you know from the Lord as you pray? It will give you confidence in your prayers. If you think about how he has delivered his church, how he has delivered you, how he has delivered your family... It gives us confidence in the future to rehearse what we know God has already done. That our sovereign God is a covenant God. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still in their place. And this of course reminds us of the great victory of the Israelites under Joshua. What we are seeing here is that history is a part of divine action written on the world stage. And the victory is complete. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. God is completely dominant. He will never be stopped, never be swayed. Now this should give us great confidence when we pray. Can illness defeat God? Can sorrow? Can depression? Can hunger? No. God is powerful beyond anything we can imagine. And this gives us great confidence in our prayers. But we are not only to see the work of God in our prayers, we are also to do something else that is difficult. It is to wait. Look with me at verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. If we're honest with ourselves, when we pray, we are so often afraid, aren't we? We're afraid that things will go how we don't want them to go. We're afraid there will be no escape from the circumstances that we feel we are trapped by. Even though we see and have confidence in the Lord, our bones tremble. This is natural. But I want you to see a little word in the Bible. A word that you can bring into your own life and experience. 
You see, the Bible doesn't tell you, don't be afraid for no reason at all. The Bible doesn't tell you, you know, you shouldn't think circumstances are as bad as they are. It doesn't say, just cheer up. The Bible says, I understand your fears and they are real, yet. That's that little word. It doesn't say circumstances will change. It doesn't say they're not real. It says, in the midst of your circumstances, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. How can Habakkuk do this? How can he know disaster is about to come upon him and wait quietly? Because he's not waiting on disaster. He's waiting on God. And he's waiting to see how God will manifest himself even in the midst of troubling times and disaster. You see, so often we think when bad things happen to us, God is absent and he has left us alone. When in reality, so often when things are worse for us, it is when we have the opportunity to be closest to God. When we are drawn most to pray, when we are drawn most to trust Him, when all of our other supports and hopes are stripped away, the only place we can lean is God. Habakkuk will wait. This is the faith that is described in chapter 2 and verse 4, lived out day by day. That is what it means to say, the just will live by faith. Day upon day, we wait upon the Lord. But there's a third thing, something that's even harder than waiting. That's to rejoice. Look with me at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off by the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now what you have to understand here is this is in the context of an agrarian society. This is not a recession. This is not non-optimal participation in the workforce. This is not 5% inflation. This is disaster. This is hunger and famine. This is the product of a war-torn nation. This is the thing of most hopelessness. There is no provision to be found anywhere. Everything is going wrong. Not some things, everything. And again, we have that little word, don't we? In verse 18. Yet, I will rejoice. Do you see what he says? It's not I could. It's not I can. It's not I may. Habakkuk is making a choice of the will to rejoice. And how can he possibly rejoice? Does he whistle and skip because there's nothing to eat? Does he put on a happy face because he's poor? No. I will rejoice in the Lord. Not in my circumstances, good or bad. Not in my trials. But I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And this is a call that comes to you and to me. Because no matter whether we are ill or healthy, rich 
or poor? Downcast or lifted up? No matter what our circumstances are, God remains the same. And our salvation remains secure. It does not change with our circumstances. And so we do not rejoice or sorrow in our circumstances. We rejoice in the Lord and what He has done. We will take joy in God because God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. Strong, swift, secure. He makes me to tread on my high places. He lifts me up. This is what it means to be active in prayer. There is a way of praying that is dishonoring to God. God, I wish you could help me. I know you probably won't. I know it's hopeless. I know I don't deserve anything. And there is a way of praying that is active and seizes the promises of God and says, God, I need your help. I need you to show yourself a powerful warrior on my side. I need you to remind me that there is always hope that even in the midst of my circumstances that I can rejoice in you and in your salvation for you alone are worthy. And when we have that focus on God, it doesn't make everything better. Praying like that will not put $20,000 in your bank account. Praying like that will not make the scans from the hospital show clean. But what it will do is it will prepare your heart for any of the circumstances and trials that you must go through. Because you will know that no matter what the valley is you must travel, God is with you. And he has promised never to leave you, nor forsake you. Habakkuk prays this prayer in the midst of the worst of all possible circumstances. He is hearing from the Lord that his nation is about to be destroyed. And yet, he rejoices in God. Because he knows who God is. And he knows that at the end of the day... All he needs is the living God. Do you know that? Do you pray for that? Because if you do, it will carry you through trials and difficulties. You will have trials and difficulties in this world. They are part and parcel of life. And the only way to carry yourself through them is to let the living God carry you. Let's pray.